May the words of our mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is this um, somewhat famous story about Henry Ford II, who um, took over for his grandfather as the president and CEO of Ford Motor Company in 1945. And it seems that in this story, there's this great contention in the boardroom as after the, the company had gone public and, um, and Henry Ford II, HF2 as they called him, had stayed on to sort of, uh, you know, to be the president and CEO, but as, a, as now a public company as opposed to a family-owned business. And this, uh, this contention is going on in the boardroom. And finally, someone said to him, you know, the majority's against you, Mr. Ford. Um, why should we defer to your judgment? Why should we defer to your opinion? And he pounded his hand on the table, and he pointed to the big blue oval up on the wall. And he said, because it's my name on the wall. That's why. It's my name. Oh, you're that Joe Boisel. I didn't know. If only I had known, everything would be different. That never happens. Um, I remember one time I flew to Alaska. My friend had called and said, Joe, uh, um, I'd like you and, and Zach to come up to Alaska. I have all these frequent flyer miles, and I'll never use them. Come uh, spend a week with me up in, in Nome. And so we did. Zach and I got on a plane and headed to Alaska. But when we were in the airport sitting there waiting, I heard them call my name. And, and I walk up to the desk, and I said, yes, I'm Joe Whistle. You, you called me. And the young woman behind the desk said, oh, yes, um, we're looking for you. We decided to, um, to upgrade you to first class. I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, the only reason they did it is because my friend had so many miles, and they, so I got the benefit of, of being bumped up to first class. First time I'd ever flown first class. And um, I want you to know, it's really nice. Um, <laughs> the seats are a lot bigger. Um, the, the staff is so attentive. Um, the hot towels are everything that I had hoped they, they would be. Uh, it, was, it was wonderful. Um, it was a score, you know. Here I am. First class seats. Ever been to a busy restaurant? You go into the restaurant, you don't have reservations, and you ask the maitre d' or the person at the front, you know, any chance I can get a table? Oh, no. Yeah, I'm afraid not. You know, 845, the only thing I can get you in for. And then this couple walks in. And they look absolutely gorgeous, like a million bucks. And suddenly they have a table, you know, that's waiting for them. And you think, this isn't fair. This is not right. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Oh, you're the mayor. I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Right this way. Please come. Oh, you're the company president. Oh, yes, we have a place for you. You're you're a county commissioner. Oh, of course. If only we had known. People are not treated the same. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's a very fact of life that people are not all treated the same. What was the old American Express motto? You know, membership has its privileges or something like that. And wealth and power and notoriety, they change. Oh, and appearances. Um, a beautiful person has always moved ahead of a square head like me. You know, it always happens like, why is she getting to get up there? Well, Look at her. Oh, okay, that makes sense, I guess. Because life isn't fair. It's just not. And people are not all treated the same. But what I've noticed is if you get a little taste of privilege, oh, man, it's like a drug, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is consuming. It's like, oh, I want that again. Um, you know, uh, I, I looked online um, just this week, just kind of curious, um, I thought I'll book it a month out. Just you know, a month out. Schedule a round trip flight from Cleveland to London just to see 
pricing, um, economy class ticket. I thought it was a little high, $1,500 on American Airlines from, um, from Cleveland Hopkins to London Heathrow um, the middle of the month of July. The same flight, the exact same flight, if you just move up another 27 feet into the front of the fuselage where they have these really big seats and the hot towels and all that sort of stuff, um, was $8,500. $7,000 more to fly on the exact same plane, <laughs> arrive at the exact same. The only thing is you get on earlier, you have a better meal and more attentive staff and all that sort of thing. Why would people do that? Well, because they can and because they like it, <laughs> because it, they become accustomed to it. It's good to be treated well. I remember the first time I actually did fly to London, my son was, my oldest son was 14 at the time, and we, of course, were 27 feet back in the back of the plane, and, um, and we're sitting there, and he's rifling through first, his first commercial flight. So he's rifling through all, you know, the front uh, little pouch pocket in front of the seat, and he looks at stuff, and, and they have a diagram of the plane that we're on. And you see all the seats in the back where we were, kind of huddled close together, and then the next section where they're spread out a little apart, and then the front section where they have like these little cubicle pods, you know, and they're like beds that you can lie down in with a television and all this sort of stuff. And he says to me, why do they let us know? Why do we need to know what we're not getting? You know, it's like the old Jerry Seinfeld, if only you had worked harder. Um, you know, we, if we had just not known this. Once you taste a little bit of privilege, it's pretty easy to like it. And once you taste it and like it, it's pretty easy to begin to expect it. I remember reading about an American clergyman, a famous one. If I told you his name, you would recognize it immediately. And he got in trouble aboard a flight because he was doing something that the flight attendant told him to stop doing, up moving around or something like that when they were trying to land. And he says to the flight attendant, don't you know who I am? She didn't, <laughs> and she didn't really care. Told him to sit back down. There was a big, uh, a big, uh, you know, thing about this, and it, it got me to thinking that sometimes privilege breeds entitlement. There's an old story in the Bible, a very old story. In fact, maybe the oldest biblical literature to exist: the story of the Book of Job. Um, Job is this fellow who's described as a perfectly decent, upright person. He is actually flawless, blameless at least, in every way. Here's what the writer in the very first chapter of the book of Job says. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was the epitome of righteousness, of decency, of goodness. And the writer tells us this story about this fellow Job, and the writer does something that only writers can do, and only, only people with, you know, with control of command of literature can do. They take an omniscient point of view. The writer takes us and tells us all about Job, but also carries us up into the courts of heaven and lets us see what's going on in the courts of heaven. We see God who's seated upon the throne and, and these who are called sons of God, um, perhaps angels, maybe other explanations, but there are angels who are there. And, and, and sitting in the courts of God, the, not only God and the angels, but the Satan, the Satan, Hasatan in, in Hebrew, the Satan shows up and is walking among the sons of God. And God queries the Satan. He knows he's up to something and asks, have you considered my servant Job? 
In other words, are you here in my courts, in my presence, because you have some sort of thing against Job? Are you going after him? Do you want to go after him? And the Satan says, well, you know, now that you bring it up, this Job fellow, sure, he's blameless and upright. Sure, he's decent and righteous. But look at him. He's got everything. You protect him. He doesn't serve you because he loves you. He serves you because you're good to him. You've blessed him. It's a wager. Take away the privilege and watch. He will curse you to your face. And for some reason that the writer never tells us, God enters into the wager. He bargains with the Satan and says, fine, go after him. Take away everything he has. And in a day, Job loses all seven of his children to terrible accidents. They all die. And then he loses all of his property and all of his money. And he's, um, he's taken everything. And there's what Job says, having suffered this in one fateful day. Then Job arose and tore his robes and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked came I from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything he has, all of his possessions, all of his loved ones, gone. So far, so good, Job. The Satan, the Satan, heads back up into heaven. Again, the writer takes us there. We don't know how he got there, but we're there. And we're watching. And, um, and, and the Satan says to God, Oh, you know, there was one more little bit. Take away all of his money. Take away all of his family. Take away all of the things that he loves. Sure. But give me his health. Give me his comfort. Take that away too, and he'll curse you to your face. And so once again, the Lord enters into this wager and gives the Satan permission. Go after him, just cannot kill him. And Job is riddled with sores all over his body. Not only are they excruciatingly painful, they are horrid to look at. One day, shortly after that, Job's wife looks at him and says, What a terrible sight you are. Why don't you just curse God and die? A lot of helpful support there from Mrs. Job. Um, and so Job is faced with this. But then Job's friends come by. He has, uh, he has three good friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are his, um, his closest buddies. They probably play golf in a foursome. Um, and they come over to see Job and... And they do what good and faithful Jews still do to this day. They sit Shiva with Job. Seven days, they sit with him and say nothing. And just mourn the difficulty that he's been through. And after seven days, Eliphaz, the first friend, speaks up and says to Job something like this. Well, Job, um, I know that you think you're suffering for no good reason. But here's what he says. Remember who that was, innocent, ever punished. What innocent person was ever punished? Or when were the upright cut off? In other words, Job, maybe there's a little secret that you're keeping from all of us. 
Maybe there's a little more to your life than you're telling us. Let's, um, let's rifle through the closets and see if perhaps we can find a skeleton or two or a dozen in there. Maybe there's a good explanation as to why you're suffering. And for 26 chapters, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar go through taking turns reminding Job that people don't suffer for no good reason. There's something there. There's something that he's not telling. We, the reader, of course, know the truth, don't we? We know. We were up in the courts of heaven. And we're like, no, stop. No, don't say that to him. You're wrong. He's done nothing wrong. It's a big wager that God is betting on Job. Stop trying to ruin him. And, and, and then we're rooting God. Please, you know, let him in on it. This book goes on and on. I mean, it's chapter after chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. We know. Job questions a lot of things, but he, he never really gets to the point where he stops believing in God. He never, ever gets to the point where he curses God. He continues to hold fast to his faith. He continues to hold fast to the belief that God is good. He finally um, says to God, you know, why? Why? And that gets us to today's text, a long kind of build-up to the text. If you have your bulletin, will you look at it with me in the Old Testament passage? He's not really speaking to God, but he's speaking to his friends, Job is. Having come to the end of their, <clears throat> their, uh, their accusations, he says to them, um, well, this is before our passage, so give me just a minute. In chapter 31, oh, that he, had, oh, that he would hear me. Here's my signal. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Let me know what I did wrong. In other words, why? Why is this happening? And then, verse 30, or chapter 8, 38, verse 1, so in your text, the very first passage, sentence in the Old Testament lesson. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. All right, Job, you want to know why? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. You want to know why? Stand up and get ready. I will question you, and you make it known to me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. (laughs) No one has suffered like Job. The reader, or the writer rather, wants you to know that no one has suffered like this before. He deserves an explanation, doesn't he? I mean, come on, come clean, a little bit of knowledge. We know that God entered into a wager with a Satan. We know that. Can't Job know that? His friends have done all kinds, given all kinds of explanations for why Job is suffering, and they've all been wrong. And now at last God speaks. Finally, Job's going to get an explanation, and here's the explanation. Who are you? Who are you to ask me this question? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. He goes on for two more chapters, laying out question after question after question. It goes from biology to zoology to meteorology to physics. Answer me these fundamental questions of these sciences. You know what Job says? Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I have laid my hand upon my mouth. I have no answer. 
I have no right to ask the question. Um, you know, I realized something years ago that flying first class, there's nothing really like it. <laughs> Once you do it, everything else is really a letdown. It, it's, it's a very um, disappointing and, you know, I could begin to expect it, I could imagine. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know? Do you know who you are? I mean, do you know who you are? And were you present when God laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know the limits of the sea and how they're set and why they're set as they are? Do you know the source of the dwelling place of light? This question that God asked Job. This is a masterpiece of literature, the book of Job. Um, it, is, um, it is one of the truly great pieces of literature ever to be in the world. And it tells us a lot of things, but it tells us this most importantly, that humans are really wonderfully created, loved by God, but they are not God. <laughs> we are wonderfully made. We are the apex of creation, but we are not gods, and we are certainly not the God. It encourages us to embrace goodness, to pursue righteousness, but to cherish humility, to know where we are in this world. Because even when we stand upon the apex of creation, at the very top of the created order, we're still looking up at the Creator. We still are not the Creator. God never does tell Job why he suffered. He chastises his friends for doing bad theology, even though they did the very best they could. He restores Job's fortunes. But life is never going to be the same for Job because he suffered. Of all the lessons in the book of Job, though, there is this one. There is a God in heaven who controls the universe. And we are not him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.